Hi, I'm Tajri, Global Chief Experience Officer at Edelman, and this is A Touch of Truth with my old friend, amazing Jackie, the world-renowned, undefeated, super intergalactic champ, Jackie Cooper. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper, the Senior Advisor and Chief Brand Officer at Edelman. With over 35 years of business experience in brand, creative, and personalized strategy. On Touch of Truth, you'll find wisdom from some of the most respected, trusted, and successful people on the planet. And it might just make you a little more successful and a lot happier. Taj Reed, I am so happy to have you on this show today. Welcome to Edelman's Global Chief Experience Officer. And actually, you're the only Edelman person so far that we're doing, which is no pressure, just a huge compliment to you and your life. Welcome to the podcast. Yo, yes, I, I'm super grateful for this. Uh, you know, I love you guys and like to be able just to connect with you and kind of share my story and think about like what's out there in the world is pretty awesome. So yeah, I'm excited. Hello, honesty. How are you right now? At this time, in this place, in your life, business and personal. So, Taj, one of the things that I've learned from talking to you is that you have this incredible sort of transparency about how you talk and you bring, you actually bring honesty to everything that you do. So this question's really, really relevant to you, which is how are you right now, like in your personal space, in your professional space, in your creative space? If I ask you how you are right now, how do you answer that? Oh, this is a great question. I'm good. I've been trying to practice being even as much as possible just in my like daily efforts of going through, you know, experiences and moments. And in that evenness, I found like great clarity with um, who I am. And I think my role, like not only as like a dad, a husband, a son, but also like the work that I do. I came across this quote from one of my favorite artists online. His name is Esso. And Basically, he was like, we think our work is the job we go to or the place we get a check from. No, your work is the very special thing that you add to this world, your vision, your light, your love, what you share, what you create, how you make people feel. That, my friend, is truly our work. And so, you know, so much of like our personal identity and kind of like who we are, like comes through our work. But, you know, in my daily practice of that clarity, and really like looking at how I can be even, I think about like, what am I contributing to the world and what will people remember about what I do? And I think that's it. It's like, how am I helping people protect their joy, share their joy, create joy in the world and, and bring that energy where they can be exactly who they are. So um, if you ask me how I'm doing right now, because of that clarity, I'm good. But I say that I'm good with a huge sense of gratitude, but also with a huge recognition for just how hard the world is right now. So I'm trying to protect that joy and share it with others as much as I can. It's true. The world is super hard. It's really hard to even watch the news right now because it isn't, it isn't an easy watch and there's very little respite. And we know that there's tough times ahead. One of the things that you do is you bring an incredible positive energy to the room of anything I've been in, as and, and your work also features this incredible heartbeat. And, and then you come on Zooms and you come on meetings and you're just there with this big smile and you light the room up. I mean, 
I've heard so many people say, Taj, yeah, Taj, we have to have him. He lights the room up. And when the announcement was made that you were going to take the role of global chief experience officer, one of the comments you made was to bring client work with art, empathy and innovation, which is a really interesting trio. Yeah. How, how, what went on in your mind that you got to this role and that you figure in a business, it's a huge business, Edelman's the largest firm of its kind in the world, that you still keep that heartbeat and that emotive language of art, innovation and empathy, which I just love. You know, I think it stems from this idea that I'm like exactly where I'm supposed to be. Like my parents from Barbados fell in love in Bermuda, had me, I'm first generation American. And uh, in my journey to this place, I've had a couple careers, you know, um, I played soccer all my life. You know, my dad worked incredibly hard and they were like, Taj, you're gonna be one of two things. You're gonna either be a doctor or a lawyer. Like, we know that you love art. We know that you love coding and, you know, being on your Apple IIc back in the day, but like, you're gonna be a, a doctor or a lawyer. So I went the legal route and worked really hard at that. Did uh, immigration law, then public policy. And from there, um, was also at the same time, like, DJing and, and creating like little zines that were like only in the New York City area. And uh, my dad, he's doing great. He lives with me now. He survives cancer. And he says to me, you know, Taj, I see you burning the candle at both ends. Like you're doing, I worked at this like public policy think tank where I thought like I could really, and I still believe this changed the world by helping young people read at grade level that are in underserved areas. And at the same time, trying to live through my like art kind of aspirations. And he's like, you've got one chance. And because I was so close to my dad and the, seeing his kind of like mortality fall into question and having to face that reality of like, whoa, this is all we've got. I like, I just went for it. So 2007, like left my public policy job, started a small shop that was all, it's like a little creative agency with my good friends and we got some early success, but then <laughs> like all small businesses hit hard times and had to pivot. And we got some early wins that got the attention of Edelman. And that got me to Edelman in 2014 as uh, associate creative director. And I remember I was working on eBay. And that's where we first met, Jackie, because I came to London. And just seeing the impact that I could make through marketing a brand by bringing all of my previous experiences, you know, um, communication and energy from like the law, the building a zine and building a small agency and being entrepreneurial through, you know, when I went out and started my own small businesses, navigating through those challenges to a point now where, you know, you're working for one of the largest PR firms out there and helping clients navigate this space and authentically connect with audiences. That's where I was like, oh, like art, empathy, innovation, those three pieces are the, those are the codes. Those are the things that we need to bring together to really change things because the empathy piece, when I think about how we can make an impact in people's lives through a system that's built on capitalism, it is making a world that matches with people rather than forcing people to match with the world. And that empathy and that empathetic design, that's the clarity I was talking about where like, that's my assignment. How can I connect those two? How can I help people fall in love with 
you know, aspiration through art? How can I meet them where they are through empathy? And how can I meet them where they are with purpose through innovation? You know, whether that be technology, whether that just be like great storytelling. So all of my life's experiences, all of who I am, all of the work that I've done, it kind of like brought me to this point where I can kind of start to connect the pipes and then really make, you know, uh, a, a world that is, is, is better matched for everybody. So um, that's why, like more than anything, when I look at those three areas, art, empathy, and innovation, I get really excited about, I'm always, as I always say, it's made with love, nothing precious. I'm always tweaking and, and adjusting, but those three feel like great starting points or three great ingredients for making the world better. You know, you speak and it's brilliant because the intersection of those things, how you describe them makes so much sense. But do you think that clients are ready for that? Or do you think clients are still in the place of thinking about sort of information that they need to share? It feels like you're maybe ahead of some of the people that you're then working with. Yeah, you know, um, it, at times it is challenging, like to get all the clients to see it that way. It's, and I have, you know, empathy is going to come up a lot, but I understand that when you're looking at, you know, having to make quick decisions fast and you're thinking about the short term rather than the long term because of market pressures, because of maybe what's happening on social or in the world or in the news, it makes a lot of sense, but that's where relationships really come into play. And so um, for me, when I think about Edelman as this place that earns trust and inspires action, my first job on the front lines of connecting with audiences is really understanding my clients' needs and sharing what their audiences' needs are in a trusted venue. So, you know, being able to establish those relationships with clients where it moves from, you know, a regular pitch to like collaboration and moves from like a moment of judgment to a moment of coaching and getting to understand more and more their needs. That's where I think there's a better understanding of why those three ingredients are so important. So, you know, while I was at Edelman from 2014 to 2016 and then jumped out to Microsoft and worked there from 2016 to about 2018. And in that time, I learned so much about empathetic design and being able to create and ship product that meet people where they are. And we did that through data and research. And so I brought all of that back to Edelman in terms of our approach. Like, how do I really speak to our clients in a way that's trusted, but that shows them the data to make the best decisions possible? because of what their audience's needs are. And I think that's how, you know, a lot of times uh, business wants to move fast, but I think best businesses move at the speed of their audience's needs. And if we're not careful, we can make decisions that don't meet our, meet our audiences where they are. So being able to show that data and make those connections is what allows us to have those deeper relationships with clients, those trusted relationships, and to take the time that's needed to build that. I mean, you look at a company like Apple, it may feel like overnight success, but no. I personally remember I got the Apple IIc and I thought I was the coolest. And then I went to the store and there was no software. <laughs> you know, everybody was on P PC. I go to stores like Babbage's. But they like were so committed to their vision and development over time that they got to this place where design is at the forefront, at the center of what they do and how they reach people. 
they make decisions in a very calculated and methodical way that like analyzes the market and analyzes the audiences. And so, you know, some of this stuff is just earned. It just takes time. And I really, really have a great deference and appreciation for that time. It's so interesting because I think the mix of the kind of organic evolution of telling stories, sharing stories, which we kind of base, you know, so much of our core work on, and then match it with the data to reassure anyone that they can take a leap to have that story is the perfect mix. And we found this also with the Gen Z data, where I've been, you know, those of who've been listening to this podcast know that I've been deeply involved in the Gen Z world and understanding what that cohort needs and what that generation wants from us, which is obviously a lot of questions that need to be answered. And so many clients have said to me, you know, it's really interesting that you've given me the data to back up the anecdotal feeling that I have. And I think people often think, well, if you're telling stories, it doesn't need to be based on fact because that's just creative. But what you're explaining here is this amazing intersection between empathetic creativity, but also underpinned by the fact. So you're not making a jump into darkness and then also having that feeling of trailblazing in some way with innovation. And I think it's really hard sometimes for clients to to move from a traditional marketing experience sort of behavior to get to this so have you got advice for clients who are maybe thinking well this all sounds fabulous but this is a long way away from where I'm living with my product launch or my you know new version of this or my you know new version of that (laughs) you know uh I do and I've been thinking about it this like very simple model for all meaningful experiences so I love how you referenced earlier that like traditional marketing had clear like storytelling mechanisms. And now in this world where we can reach audiences in multiple ways, like through social, through out of home, through media and more. And I've been thinking about experiences and inexperiences to me personally in my like like heart. I think that is where you make the deepest, long lasting connections with people. And we've laid out experiences in four, like there's like four steps to it. There's the invitation, the engagement, that engagement being rewarding, and then the ongoing utility or outcomes that it can bring to that audience. And so no matter how big or small your product launch is or the idea that you have, I love that, that, that mental model because it scales to meet your audience with the needs that they might have. And so like, what is the invitation right now? There's so much stuff competing for individuals' attentions. And, you know, we've seen where that can go, where you, you know, kind of over index on like, how do we win people attention? Because it could go to places that aren't healthy for humans or for the world. But if you think about what is a strong invitation that meets that person's needs, then they come into the engagement. And in that engagement, if it's rewarding for them and it, you know, they leave that experience maybe a little bit better than they were, or they leave that experience with an understanding that they want to tell another person about it, that reward is everything that then can go and open the door for ongoing utility between you and that client or that brand. So that is kind of like the advice, or that's the way that we've been presenting creative ideas to really make that impact and to put empathy at the forefront. Because without empathy, you can't have a strong invitation. You can't have a meaningful engagement. You can't have the right reward. So 
we've been leaning really hard into that mental model. It's simple. It's four steps. And it's something that um, we use almost as a razor for ourselves to to determine what ideas live and what ideas, you know, get tucked away maybe for later or to be revisited. The Truth Test. A few questions on truth from a self, human and brand perspective. So this is a touch of truth because we wanted to get behind some yeah. of the stories. And I think in marketing, sometimes it's hard to get to the underneath. And yet the really fantastic campaigns are made from people who bring their heart to work. And you definitely do that. So here's some truthful questions for you, Charge. And we're actually asking, it's the only thing that right, we're asking every right. guest of, because I thought it'd be really interesting to compare to these three questions. The first one is... What do you think is the biggest gamble that you ever took in your life? <laughs> Jackie! Um, <laughs> the biggest gamble I ever took in my life was in 2007, quitting my public policy job at a think tank to go full blast as an entrepreneur into the creative field. Um, I have a non-traditional background. I didn't go to uh, undergrad or grad school for art, for creative. I really left everything that I had prepared for and bet on myself and the things that I learned on my own, completely self-taught in the world of creative, design, business. And um, those well, I would say like six to seven years of owning your own business was like the most impactful, greatest schooling that I could ever get to prepare me for the work that I'm doing today. And so that by far was the, the biggest, I would say like business gamble. Um, I would say the biggest like personal gamble is, uh, and I sometimes still can't believe that it's working out, is it's okay to be too nice. And I, I also, I feel just a little nervous even saying that, you know, like there is an archetype for leadership in the world today that believes you have to be like stoic, um, maybe, um, you know, less emotional. And I am 100% emotion. And I'm a hundred percent like uh, willing to be vulnerable because I feel like everybody has that desire inside. And I know that as I was like going through work, I was always looking for those leaders that were still able to bring energy, clarity and deliver success, but also showed me that they didn't have the answers all the time and were looking for help. And so um, that is the biggest gamble and a gamble that I think I take every day because uh, uh, I love my mom and dad so much. And they have this joke there. My dad says he fears he raised a son that's too sweet for the world. And my mom says that she's so proud that she raised such a sweet son. And, you know, coming up at a young age, I, I, I worried about being too nice. But now, like, if on my gravestone, they say, like, here lies a man that was too nice. I'm good with that because I think the world really needs an over-index on kindness. Oh, my God. Both of those answers are so brilliant. So let me ask you about the first answer. When did it stop getting scary that you had taken that gamble? When did it? How did you go from being 
kind of, oh my God, I'm taking the jump to actually this is the jump I needed to do? How long did it take or what happened that made it not scary? Or did it just remain scary and it was kind of good fear? Because I think when I ran my own business and I had a business partner who was very good at the things I wasn't good at and we would say, who's going to find us out? You know, who's going to find out that we don't really know what we're doing? It actually never stopped being scary for me, but that was kind of good energy in a way, as long as the good stuff outweighed the bad stuff. Yeah. How did it go for you? Well, to be clear, it's still scary, Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. There goes the honesty. (laughs) It hasn't gone away at all. But but I will say um, it got to the point where I was so in love with the possibility of what could be. Like, oh, man, I, I was doing this thing where, Jackie, I would wake up, go to work, then my wife would meet me at like 7 at uh, the Philadelphia train station. We would go down to Dumbo, Brooklyn. I would DJ to like 2.30 in the morning where I also had like my zines and our website and all this stuff, meet tons of brilliant people and then take the like 2.35 or 3 o'clock train home, like shower up and then go to work again. And I had just loved the work. I, I love art, design, culture so much and music that like, I would forego sleep. It was just like my life's blood. And so um, taking that leap, I think the adrenaline of like fully pursuing something that I just wanted to see if I could do it, it, it like protected me. And I was much uh, probably like younger and daring then. Now I, I, I do feel a little bit more cautious, but like, whoa, the, the desire just to chase that dream, especially... Um, after seeing, you know, my, my dad survive cancer was something that made me be like, yeah, this, we got one shot, so I'm just going to go for it. But yeah, uh, there is a level of, I have more confidence, but there is always a level of fear because I am, I'm, I'm going for it, Jackie. Like I am always trying to be at the edge of my comfort and just going for it. So that, that fear is still alive and well, hanging out in the back of my brain. I so relate. (laughs) I so relate. I kind of, you know, it's that sort of almost that thing you hear from people before they go on stage where they say, you know, this the stage fight kind of makes them sharper. Yeah. And I'm constantly pushing myself out of my comfort zone. Um, example, podcast host. Uh, <laughs> well, you're doing great. You not, don't see the fear at all. <laughs> not, um, not something I ever thought I'd do, but actually loving hearing everyone's stories. The second story relates to your sweetness and I I love the word and I love that you're a man and you're using that word and I see that when I work with you and I totally relate because my word which has now been hacked to death because it's overused is kindness which actually comes from kinship and I always think what's the point in not doing it kill everybody with kindness and there was a journalist years ago when I was a publicist who was so horrible to me And so awful to me. And the client was like, we're going to address it. We're going to get legal action. We're going to have a go. I said, you know, I'm going to take him out for a drink. And they said, that's the most ridiculous suggestion. He doesn't want to hear from you. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't care about you. And I said, I think he's really sad. And I think he's really angry. He's actually a very famous fashion journalist. No longer with us, unfortunately. So I'm not going to say who it is. But I took him out for a drink. And after 10 minutes, the walls just came down. And he was actually a very, very sad individual and we remained very, very good friends and even went to Italy 
for a Kim Bassinger hosiery launch, which was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever been involved in in my life. And he kept me laughing the whole time. And it just you just don't know what's behind people. So I think when you drop the walls and you show that sweetness, it changes the, the chemistry with people around you and, and, and they can be sweet back. So I, I love that you're that way and your parents, I'm sure, are proud as hell that you are too. Here's a second question. <laughs> I have two questions. I don't know which one to ask you next. <laughs> I'll keep you on the edge of your seat. No, I'm going to ask you, what is the worst meeting that you've ever been in and why? In real life, the worst meeting. Oh, um, this is a great one. Um, I was in a meeting where I... I I had all the data, I had all the facts for a product that I was designing. And um, my excitement for that went towards the, the story and the romance of this, what this product could be. And I, you know, I should have definitely leaned more into the data, but it was because I thought my audience in this meeting was with me. And this is when I was brand side and it was with engineers. And uh, it taught me a huge lesson on of understanding your audience and empathy because the audience completely rejected the idea and just shot all kinds of holes in the, the concept and like really started tearing it down. And, um, you know, at about like 15 to 30 minutes in, I, I knew that this wasn't moving forward. And after that meeting, I met with one of the engineers and I was like, how come this feels like so obvious? How come no one wants to do this? And um, this engineer was luckily a good friend and pulled me aside and was like, Taj, you can only spend so long being an ideas person. At some point, you really got to be about shipping product. And in shipping product, it's not just what will someone think about this and how will they love it today? It's thinking about how will they love it five years, 10 years from now. And that might sound like it's killing innovation to you, but when you have engineers that are working so hard and have a roadmap, you have to have a strong justification for why they should alter that roadmap for something that feels ephemeral or just for today. And I mean, this, this meeting went terribly. And I remember walking out of there being like, oh, I will never make that mistake again because I had to, it was like, I don't know if you watch Survivor. I'm a huge Survivor fan. I felt like I got voted off the island with the with the idol in my pocket. <laughs> I could have played my idol and I didn't. Like I had the data, but um, I didn't make the case for it. And so, you know, um, that tough lesson of thinking about ongoing utility and knowing my audience, you know, we speak about earlier or we spoke about earlier, the idea of um, an invitation, engagement, reward, ongoing utility, that mental model to me was born from that meeting of like, not only do I need to understand my audience, but I've got to show why this will provide ongoing utility, not just for today as something cool and innovative, but for tomorrow and the days after. So that was the worst meeting, but also uh, I learned a lot from it. So maybe it was the best meeting. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, like my dad, who has been a massive influence on me, used to say that when someone says no, that's the best thing because you know where to start. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that was one of those things where at least you know where you're starting, right? Because it was really, really clear. 
yeah. uncomfortably so, but then you 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 kind of reposition yourself and pivot. That's right. So the last question, last question of the three of this particular section is, who's the best person that you've ever met in real life? Not on Zoom, so we have to ignore the screen experiences. And how did they inspire you? Oh, uh, uh, hands down, Marsha Levesque, who is now my wife, because she saw me for who I could be when I was just 19. And I've been madly in love with her ever since. Oh, my God. Let's just let that sit for a second. <laughs> yeah, she's well, awesome. She must be one kind of a woman, Charles Reed. That's yeah. all I can say. No, I, um, I, uh, oh, man, I, um, it's funny, like, you, you have moments where you're just like, uh, am I right? Am I good enough? Is the way that I'm thinking about the world, like, true? Or is it just, like, um, after, like, false? And uh, at 19, despite all, like, my faults or, like, the things I hadn't worked on yet, she saw who I could be, and I feel like her uh, enduring love and just like commitment to our story um has been everything and so um it gives me the day-to-day -day confidence to just be who i am and to go for it and so yeah i'm incredibly grateful for her that's just beautiful um i'm sure she's incredibly grateful for you too oh, thanks Jackie. um maybe we'll get her on later <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it good for you as it was for him <laughs> Um, she's like, no, he's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just hanging on, Jackie. I'm hanging on. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, don't underestimate yourself, Taj. Vision of truth. Can you see the future? Can you change the future now? So, Taj, let's move to our tomorrows. How do you see the future sort of unrolling? What do you see in the future now? Um, I'm really excited about the future, and I, I'm hopeful for the future. The way that I see the future is not so much to be like a super futurist, but to be as present as possible and really pay attention to what's happening today. And um, just even in my daily practice, I think about, like, what seeds am I planting today that uh, bring promise for tomorrow? But then, like, what are other people planting? You know, and like, how is that moving forward so that uh, I can ensure that my intentions are like moving in a direction that is like best serving this mission of creating a much more inclusive uh, environment, space, world for people where they can just be a thousand percent themselves and have. Um, the best opportunities to fulfill their dreams. Like that to me is uh, maybe not the super futurist answer, but the one that I, I try to implement on a day-to-day -day day -day basis of just being as present as possible. Can I ask what you would say to Gen Z about that? Because Gen Z are very fearful about tomorrow and their future, and they're quite understandably a bit pissed off with us at, what we've left them to inherit, both in terms of the planet and their kind of safety. We see in our data that they're looking for safety and they don't feel safe in the world. Yeah. With this advocacy hat on and with you changing the world with the campaigning 
kind of work that you do that has proper impact. What would you say to Gen Z about their fears of tomorrow? I draw a lot of inspiration from Gen Z largely because they are paying attention to everything that's happening right now. And that is the part that I'm focusing on in terms of like, what's the best work that I can do for tomorrow? They're right about a lot of things. And uh, in that, I think we have two options. We can either continue to like look at it, this is how I interpret it, and say like things are bad, or we could ask ourselves, much like with Mighty Dream, what are we gonna create that's missing to make it better? And so the level of detail, nuance, and um, focus that I watch Gen Z have and um, the conversations that we have that I look to understand is something that I use as energy to really make the best decisions for tomorrow that I can make today. Um, the There's no other generation that has as much access to um, points of information like Gen Z. And so their response is right and true. It's just what do we do with that response in a way that's meaningful for the future? And I think we need to use that energy to make the next best play. I played soccer all my life and um, my favorite coaches used to always say, like, you can either look at what went wrong and stay there in the game, or you could use that as a point of information to make the next best play. And that's how I, I look at, I think, Gen Z's point of view. And also, like, what I'm seeing in the world personally is, like, how do we collectively make the next, next best play that includes everyone and allows their voice to be heard in a way that then paints a world that is just much more active for us that like helps us do the work and not so much have to fight it at every step of the way so the vision of truth part of this conversation leads me neatly to a project that you've been massively integral to which is an awesome awesome initiative which is that you've partnered with Pharrell Williams in his Mighty Dreams initiative and this creative sort of agency for creative advocacy for the black and brown communities is an amazing achievement. I know it's early days and it's only just starting in September but it seemed to me that it fits really well with our chat about what's for tomorrow and there was this incredible quote explaining that the mission of Mighty Dreams is to create what's missing for communities of colour through creative advocacy. And I love the notion of creating, you know, creating impactful change for what's missing. What do you see as being your role in this amazing agency with Pharrell? I know that you've been a creative pulse for him and sort of how to articulate what Mighty Dreams stands for. And how do you see the vision of the future for advocacy? It's an incredible collision, I think, of where you've come from with your public policy experience and then all of the things that you've already taken us through. This must be quite a moment. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. Because, one, um, within the walls of Edelman, I get to work with the most incredible team. So everyone from Donald Franklin at UEG and Hirsch, um, at Edelman and Lisa Ross to, you know, uh, Robbie Wells and Marissa Viaggi, who's like my creative partner and just uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, it 
is feels like the summation of all of the experiences we've collectively had, but more personally to me, like that I've collectively had. So this idea of blending creative and policy to make long-term change for marginalized communities is everything. I think it is so it's it's an ambitious call to action to create what's missing, but it's also one that's necessary and urgent. And so um, thinking about going from, you know, immigration law and working on political asylum to help people stay in the U.S. that may be persecuted going, you know, back to their, their home country to um, opening up 450 after school programs throughout the U.S. to address literacy needs in underserved communities to entrepreneurship to working at Edelman with some of the world's biggest brands. All of that coming together really with the experiences that the team has had has really launched this concept where we were like, if we are about empathetic design and empathetic creative, let's start by creating an agency that is inclusive to its core. So the creative and strategy and account leads that work for my dream are all starting and coming from a place of diverse lived experiences. And then, you know, how do we tap into resources that are there? I'm a HBCU grad, graduated from Howard Law. Like, how do we look at our HBCU institutions to recruit um, creatives into this role? And then exact all of that creative might towards uh, systematic change and policy advocacy with the lens of like Edelman from you know, this idea that action inspires trust and how we can get brands on board to, you know, all of the creative genius and gravity that Pharrell has, bringing that together in a creative advocacy agency to me is so dynamic, so new that when we started the conversation, Jackie, and it's like, uh, how am I feeling? I am like right where I'm supposed to be. Like to see all of that come together with this team has been um, really amazing. So the idea of creating what's missing to that point is largely to look at the gaps, to look at the areas where uh, communities have been marginalized and just close it. And so when we think about like our core pillars, most agencies go to a brand and they'll say like, what's broken in your product or your company and how can we fix it? Mighty Dream, the agency looks at the world and looks at the US specifically for this first phase and says, what are the policies? What are the areas that are broken? Climate justice, entrepreneurship, education, and how can we create a brief off of those broken pieces to fix them and, and come up with a solution that's in partnership with a brand? So we can look to our brand partners and say, join us on this brief to solve it. And then in solving it, we will not only bring affinity to those brands, but we are also making the world a better place. And so that idea, I think that modus operandi or that, you know, the way that we operate is so fundamentally different and it's rooted in just good that I, I really believe that Mighty Dream has a bright future. Um, we announced a few months ago and uh, from that announcement, we had the Mighty Dream Forum at the top of November, which brought together, I think uh, Pharrell had mentioned $56 trillion in brands were on stage all focused on that gap. Wow. 
And so wow. it's so exciting to think about like we've got the attention, we've started the conversation that has been going on in different pockets, but I feel like we're really organizing it to this place where now we're developing briefs and partnering with brands to just bring that action to the world. So um, yeah, incredibly grateful for that work and that opportunity. You know, uh, Lisa really opened it up and having her, you know, kind of be a coach along this journey has been quite awesome. And what's the vision? What does what does success look like? Say you were to project in five years' time. I mean, you mentioned many injustices, and yeah. we are in, a, as we talked about, the planet and the workplace and our society is challenged as never before. So what does success look like for Mighty Dreams and you? I, I see success as, like, long-term change, and we've already seen evidence of this through Edelman, and I can just reference uh, two case studies. So one, the Crown Act with Hair Love and the work that Melly and the Unilever team did with Dove that's incredible, that has brought, you know, greater uh, equity in the workplace for black and brown individuals with their hair. Like, that, to me, that, when I saw that, that was such a beacon of inspiration for what's possible through creative, that um, that to me is like the bar for success. And then I also think about uh, See My Skin with Vaseline. Um, personally, coming back in 2019 and being able to be a part of that team and the brainstorming where I have psoriasis, I've had it since 2002, or that's when I was diagnosed. And I would say for a large part of that, almost to 2010, they didn't know what it was. And if you were to Google what psoriasis looks like on black or just like in general, it often shows results of that dermatological affliction on white skin. And so being able to create greater inclusivity at the way things are designed and created is where I think long-term change really happens. And so for See My Skin, what we were able to do was create a database that showed dermatological affliction when you looked up eczema, psoriasis, and other issues, what it looks like on black and brown skin and have that be a, a resource for people and to match them up with black and brown doctors that may inherently have greater um, understanding of the disease. Like that, that kind of work is the goal. And so pairing Pharrell with the wonderful work that Edelman does to create this new agency, um, in the short term, it's getting life-changing work like that out in the world. In the long term, it's seeing the like the data, as we had talked about earlier, of how that work has changed people's lives and using that to fuel more and more work of that same nature. Yeah, I saw some of the feedback on that Vaseline See My Skin campaign and the gratitude of recognition and representation yeah. was is, is actually emotionally kind of heartbreaking and heartwarming in equal measure and you think this is so ridiculous that this even had to be done as a campaign why wasn't right. it just thus and then you think that's so obvious but it was so missed and then for me on Dove you know when I sold my business to Edelman the first account that I was put on was Dove which was campaign for real beauty I was involved then and you know as you know duck in and out of various campaigns with with Dove and it's extraordinary now to see we're not just representing women, but we're actually making proper change, legislation yeah. change. And you talk about advocacy, that's proper impact. And I do get slightly exhausted with the purpose word um, because I just think, well, you know, I think it's used tokenistically far too often. But when you actually can go state by state and change legislation so that people have the freedom to come to work as they should, 
and not be sent home because of their hair, which is the most ridiculous thing right. I ever heard in my life and couldn't believe it even existed. When you get to political advocacy and legislation change, that really does take marketing to a different level because then I think the impact word is deserved uh, much more than the purpose word, right? Yep, yep. And and and, and through I, I love that so much, Jackie. And like through that impact, it starts to change things. Like lately I've been looking at artificial intelligence and um, especially artificial intelligence and machine learning in the space of uh, creativity. And so there's all of these new pieces of art that are developed purely by code. And where that code is drawing from is art of the past. And so, you know, in that lens, there is a bias of like what the art that this code is generating looks like because it's only tending to look at like European art. And so if we're not careful, where we think we're being innovative can also bring forward prejudices of the past. And so when I think about the impact that we make, it's like, how do we use the present to change that, stop that from coming forward and then making impact that's more inclusive so that it runs into the future and makes a more open and matched world for people. Touch of truth. A story that affirms a personal impact on the planet and people because of the truth they shared. So Taj, I'm going to ask you about a personal story that you can share with us where you feel that you can share a story about a person's impact on the uh, on the planet uh, or on the people that really had that impact because of a truth that they shared because at the core there was a truth that made that 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 story special um i'll do my dad first uh so uh my dad has been my superhero my entire life and um as i get older I tend to ask him more uh, deeper questions because I just want the full like history. I want to make sure that I know everything about him. And uh, one of the things that I'm most inspired by uh, was his ambition. So uh, he was a pharmacist in Barbados. And I believe when the pharmacists started to go on strike and their like their salaries were capped, he moved to Bermuda. And when he moved to Bermuda, I believe he's only 21. And he went there just knowing like one other person, which was his cousin, and uh, went for it. And then had great ambitions of making it to the, the States one time, or, or eventually. And, and in that, uh, he meets my mom. My mom and him hit it off. They fall in love in Bermuda and they collectively have this ambition and then they make it to the States. And the reason I tell that story and how you know, my dad uh, really has lived in a world of yes, like even though you may be afraid or have fear, he's always chosen to be an explorer. And um, I remember once he uh, was, I was trying to make a really difficult decision uh, whether to stay on the East Coast or to move to the West Coast for this job opportunity. And he looked at me and he was like, son, you're an explorer, bud. Like, and it was just one of those things where it was exciting, scary, and reaffirming all at the same time. He was saying to me, go for it. He was also saying to me, like, 
or squad, like if it goes miserably bad, you at least tried it and you could always come back. <laughs> and um, and in that, I have these moments where, you know, as uh, Taj Reed, 46, black man in the US with Bayesian heritage, looking at my dad and my son in the same household and that confidence of, even if you're afraid, remember that you're an explorer and you can do it. You have the skills to see the world and to have new experiences and to know that at your core, you have this, this, this squad around you that loves you um, is, is something I'm incredibly grateful for. And so the impact of that on my life is what fuels me to go out and do the work that I do. And so I think that is like a tremendous, at least, kind of like a core memory starting point, if you will. You know, when you started to talk about your dad, I actually felt super emotional for a couple of reasons. One is because my dad is no longer here mm -hmm. and he was an older dad, so he did really well. He lived till he was 86, but he was wow. born in 1915. And he was married before with a very unhappy marriage and then met my mum, who was a much younger... New York-born actress, and he kind of... She turned up at his office with the inability of shorthand or any secretarial abilities at all, but said she was a secretary because she needed money having travelled to London. And he knew that, and he employed her anyway. And oh, they wow. had a very, very long and happy marriage. But my dad was also my hero, Taj, and he had a marketing background all his life, and he also said... Just you're only going to put your own restrictions on yourself. And I think if any father can give their kid that advice, it's the best feeling in the world that you, yeah. that you know that if your dad and your mum supports you and that they're also there for you if it all goes wrong, I hope I give my kids the same kind of... I mean, they've grown up and hopefully they feel that way. I'm also going to say that our producer, Andrew's dad, is very ill, so that made me feel emotional for him being mm. on this podcast. But I feel we have to ask our dads those questions before we can't ask them anymore, and our mums. So yeah. that really resonated because they do have wisdom. As you get older, you know yourself, as we've said, but you're at this point where you suddenly have wisdom, and if you don't ask those questions and it's too late, then you're kind of missing out, but... That's, it is a, a beautiful story, and he's obviously quite a man. Oh, uh, thanks, Jackie. Um, thanks for sharing that. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying um, just to make the most of this time we have, you know? So, um, yeah, thinking about you too, Andrew. Uh, and then my second person uh, is a creative that I knew before they knew me. So... Uh, Judy John, uh, our global chief creative officer, uh, in 2015 was at the 3% conference, which was uh, this incredible conference that looks to inspire, open up paths, and to change the advertising industry so that there's more um, uh, female equity in the creative direction role. And she was on a panel, and I'll never forget this, like, she was talking about how uh, she sees the work that she does and her role as a mom and wife and friend. And she was so transparent and honest 
And I just thought it would be appropriate for the show Touch of Truth where uh, Judy said, you know, there are days where I feel like I'm failing at everything, but I'm trying and I'm in the game, you know? And, and, and uh, I saw her at a time where I have three kids, uh, Fanaz 21, who is amazing, Stella's 11 and Harry's six. And as I mentioned earlier, my wife's incredible and trying to be like a, a awesome like member of that team while also trying to be an awesome member of the team at work. Sometimes candidly is hard trying to find that rhythm and that balance. And the way that she said that and the way that she talked about maintaining her inspiration and at the same time fighting the inequities in the industry just to me was a vision like um, if you've seen or met or know Judy, you will be hard pressed to find anyone more authentic than her. She is a thousand percent herself. And it, it, like watching that and the impact she had on that audience was phenomenal. And then seeing how she continues to champion that, not in the big moments, I'm talking about the small moments was like in, in amazing. And so when I came back to Edelman and I knew I would have the chance to work with her, um, Every moment, every call, every meeting, I look at it as school. I value, I take notes, and I joke with her that I say, I, I, I'm sorry for being weird, Judy, but like, I appreciate every second that I get to spend with you and that I get to learn from you because watching how she's making these decisions, not for the only the short term, but the long term, is amazing. And so one of the things that we partnered on was working with the one school, um, which is a school specifically to uh, create opportunities for black and brown creative talent in the marketing and ad uh, agency. And um, in doing that, uh, in that partnership, we hire graduates from the, uh, the one school that has like a, uh, I think they're in their second or third year now of, it's portfolio school. You know, if you are, a person of color and you want to get into the advertising or marketing agency and you want to build a portfolio, you go to the school and then you get mentorship from folks like Spotify, Google, Edelman and others to then be able to break into the industry. And um, I would have only had that opportunity to do that work at, because of Judy and through Judy, we, you know, we continue to hire from that class and bring them in. They're doing incredible work. And so, um, I just get to have a front row seat to see the impact Judy has, but Judy is continually making massive impact. She is a mentor to many. She's often um, standing up for uh, individuals in the small moments when they just need that extra bit of supercharged juice to break through. And it's incredible to watch. So um, yeah, shout out to Judy John. She's, she's one of the greatest. I love that. And I think there's something about that quiet leadership. Yes that is kind of actually more special for people who are in the room than the showboating type of leadership, right? And she's very open about how she balances everything or struggles to balance everything. And I'm, I've been asked in my career to do articles about how to have it all, and I've declined every single one because I don't have it all. I mean, <laughs> who has it all? I know. There's always something that's going into... In, you know, off the rails or in between the slats. And the more that you can have women in the business who talk to that, the more it helps women coming up and men. But I think that 3% um, initiative is brilliant. Yeah. And we need to help. We need to help more people feel that it's theirs. All they have to do is is try it. It just feels that many people have failed at the 
you know, they kind of almost self-restrict themselves and they don't they don't need to do that. So if you have people like Judy who help them see that they can go for it and they have wings, that's that's a brilliant awesome. thing to be in the room with. Yeah. Well, Taj Reed, I want to say that you're actually an incredible mix of a man of sort of love and ambition and you also give heart to tech and innovation, which I love so much because so often I find... There isn't heart and meaning to innovation and technology, but you've managed to keep that still with this incredible mix of love and ambition. And you are a man of extreme, extreme soft positivity. I love that phrase. So thank you so much for sharing your very, very special ways with us. I think the Mighty Dreams Initiative has such high hopes from all of us. It's trailblazing. It's so meaningful. And I'm sure it's something that everyone is going to be so proud of with your stewardship. Um, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you, Jackie. I um, I think the world of you and you have always been one of the very first and best mentors for me um, since 2014. So I, I love you dearly and I appreciate this time with you. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper. A new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. Follow us at Touch of Truth Pod.